Don the Predator Fry. We're the United States of America. We're the toughest people ever walked this planet. It has to be Frank Mir. People ask, do you feel bad you broke the person's arm? No. Chael Sonnen. If you want to manipulate the system, first thing you have to do is understand the system. Jason Mayhem Miller. It was the worst experience of my life. Almost as bad as being on this show. It's time to knuckle up and throw down. And welcome to In This Corner with Cyrus Fees. Another big episode, a big doubleheader coming at you. We have been making it a habit to bring the legends on In This Corner, and this episode is not going to be any different. We have a couple of icons here from that golden era of the UFC, the infancy of the UFC. A couple of guys that when you used to look at those VHS tapes in your local movie store, banded 23 states, you know, whatever it would be, Ultimate Ultimate or UFC 1 through 20 probably, you saw these two guys often. And I'm talking about Don the Predator Fry, mustache and all, and Tank Abbott. Yes, these two fighters, these two legends right here on this podcast. And I'll give you a spoiler. Uh, they don't really like each other. And so you're going to hear a little bit of that as well. It's fun to bring two guys on the same podcast that don't really like each other because we can kind of touch on that during the interviews. Uh, I want to thank everybody that has been checking us out, subscribing, downloading the episodes. Truly appreciate it. If you leave a review, that obviously is huge for us. And we truly appreciate any sort of feedback we get, whether it be on Apple Podcasts, ad-free shows, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you are checking out in this corner, please leave a review, You know, subscribe, do all that good stuff, and follow us on social media. But let's get to the meat and the potatoes here. Let's get down to this podcast. And I want to give you just a little bit of background. I won't waste a whole lot of your time talking about it, but I want to talk about my background you know, with these two fighters. Now, I have never met Tank Abbott in my life. Uh, definitely a guy that's high on my list uh, because, you know, COVID happened, haven't had a chance to meet up with Tank. Um, truly an interesting individual, a guy that has been through so, so much. I had a chance to reach out to him in 2019 as Conrad Thompson, you know, the, the pod father here on adfreeshows.com was trying to put together StarCast 2, and he wanted to bring in a lot of MMA guys, a lot of those classic MMA guys, Shamrock, Severn, Tank Abbott, Don Fry. So I was kind of tasked to reach out to these guys, and there's a few that I didn't really know, and Tank was one of those guys. Now, Tank had just come off some serious surgery. I mean, I believe he died on the operating table a couple of times and just had a lot of health issues over the past four or five years. Thankfully, he had been getting better, doing a lot better. I had a chance to talk to his wife, Sally, who is so supportive of him and takes care of him all the time and is just you know an awesome partner for when I could tell. And Tank, you know, when you start talking to him, just a super cool dude. Um, I loved getting to know him and talking to him. He does have that wrestler mentality like, hey, how much am I getting paid? You know, uh, we need to make sure this gets taken care of. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That is really just that, you know, pro wrestling mentality. Uh, I guess, you know, being stiff for payments and envelopes, you know, back in the day, uh, Tank Abbott not playing that game, a shrewd businessman, if you will. But then that takes me to Don Fry. Now, Don, I had run into a number of times at the Arnold Classic up in Columbus, Ohio, when I had my TV show, MMA Inside the Cage. And I would always seek out Don Fry because it was always an amazing interview. The guy never pulls any punches. He is going to say exactly what's on his mind. It's going to be vulgar. Um, I, I don't know what to say. Um, and, and he doesn't have to be intoxicated to give you a good interview, right? He just has it off the top of his dome. 
He called Brock Lesnar a pussy. Um, <laughs> it's so many words, right? Uh, he just doesn't care. Um, he, you know, he said that, you know, women fighters should, you know, be in the kitchen and he's, he said so many things, uh, throughout the years, but truly, truly down to earth, great individual. I like Don Fry a lot. I can call him for a laugh at any time. So when we did this interview, you knew it was going to be colorful. It was right in the, basically the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, we fast forward to when you're listening to this today on audio and things have changed a little bit. So we cut out some of that that was focused so much on the pandemic, but I couldn't cut it all out because everybody just wants to hear what Don Fry has to say on just about everything. Big Trump supporter, by the way. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, I love these two guys. I love these interviews, and I feel like you will too. So let's get right to it. Don Fry, Tank Abbott, right here on In This Corner. He is a UFC Hall of Famer. Uh, winner of the UFC 8 tournament, winner of the UFC Ultimate Ultimate Tournament, 15-year vet of MMA, 15-year, excuse me, 16-year vet of pro wrestling, and he's been in 13 different movies and TV shows, all kinds of stuff. And folks, he has no filter. Don, the Predator Fry, all the way from Arizona. How you doing, Don? I'm doing good. How the hell are you? <laughs> well, you I am just, Missouri, right? Now, I am in Tennessee. I am in East Tennessee, and... Uh, just trying to uh, live the coronavirus pandemic life is what I'm trying to do right now. I'm, I'm all, I was going to put on my mask and my gloves and talk to you, you know, because, you know, it's frightening. It's just such a terror going out nowadays. It's like, God damn, are we Americans or what? We're in the USA. We kick it price ass, you know, and we're scared of a little fucking invisible bug, you know? Bullshit. Let's get back to work. Well, you know, it's it's a very divisive thing, and one thing that we can agree on is that, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, life has definitely changed uh, for a lot of people, maybe not for the predator, uh, but, but for a lot of people, uh, it, it's changed drastically economically and, and everything, and uh, how, how do you think we're going to bounce back out of that? Well... First, I, I need some toilet paper, so if anybody has extra toilet paper, send it to my house. You know? <laughs> hey, have you seen these idiots? I mean, crime, and it's, it's like they're going to rob the toilet paper truck next, you know? Instead of stealing cigarettes, they're going to steal toilet paper. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea that uh, people were... Uh making bowel movements that often that they needed that much toilet paper. <laughs> I know we've never had that issue at my yeah, house. I, I go outside, grab the garden hose and clean off. You know, <laughs> well, you've spent a lot of Money time overseas, so you I, know what that's all about. I got, I, you know, I, I used to have photos of my ex-wife, but um, those are <laughs> put to good use here. I see you're wearing the Ribera Steakhouse shirt. So I, we were going to talk about Japan anyway. So, um, let's talk about that wrestling and fighting in Japan. Just tell me what it was like being Don Fry in Japan when everything was booming and so popular, it, it had to be wild. Hey man, being Don Fry at any time is wild, man. Come on. <laughs> Anytime, anywhere. It's like, it's like a circus and having a marching band around you. you know? <laughs> What did you think about Japan, though? I mean, just overall, the fans and the way people treated you. And uh, you're, you're a pretty big icon over there. 
I was lucky. I got a real lucky uh, part, you know, in the pro wrestling world. And then I was real uh, lucky and fortunate in the fight world to return to that until until I got injured and then I started popping the pills too much, you know, and then my, my career went down, but uh, fans are great. Fans are fantastic. You know, I love Japan. I really do. You know, if, um, you know, if they had a, a better system of government, you know, and they were allowed to have their, their guns and swords and knives, I, 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 and I couldn't live here. I'd move, I'd live there. <laughs> but they would have to change so many things. That's what I don't get about people here. They're not happy with the government here. Move, leave, because there's trees that are the same on in the U.S. as they are in the other part of the world. The cement's the same. The rocks are the same. Everything that's different is a system of government. If you don't like this system of government, go somewhere where they have the one you want. I like it here. Leave it the fuck alone. You know, I, I agree. You know, I've had the chance, and I know you have as well, to, to kind of see the world out there and, and see all these amazing places. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if you don't like it here, there are definitely places you can go uh, that may suit your needs and may suit who you are uh, a lot better. Uh, so, so you said you loved being over there in Japan. You know, those crowds, you know, on my bucket list, you know, to even do an event or to ring an ounce or to do anything over in, you know, the Tokyo Dome and some of these incredible arenas. Just talk about what the difference was between one of those and then fighting in, you know, like a U.S. venue. Well, thing is, you're talking to somebody who I, I can't make a, a logical comparison, you know, now because when I was fighting here in the States, it was borderline illegal, you know? And the, the old joke was, all right, after the fights, you either go to the hospital or you go to the after party. But there's a third. You could have went to jail, you know, because they were always there. They were always looking at that. It was always a toss of a coin before the fight if, uh, you know, how the courts were going to play it. And you didn't know if they were going to shut it down or make it illegal or, you know, send the cops to stand there at the at the cage and make sure you don't close fist punch somebody you know i mean it was and uh, over there in japan um it was such a great it wasn't just a uh, sporting show it was an event you know it was a spectacle it's a great event it's like the super bowl every three or four months People would get dressed up, you know, they, they would go over there and, and it would sell out. You, you know, you're fighting in front of 48,000, 75,000, then that one time with that 100,000, you know. So it was, I can't compare because, like I said, when I was fighting here, it, it was kind of a shadowy, you know, underground almost thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Speaking of, of being over there and, and pride, and there's, there's always so many questions, and I'm surprised there hasn't even been a documentary about just pride in general, uh, because it is such an interesting organization, and it's shrouded in some dark, seedy stuff, and what can you tell me about that? Just in your experience with dealing with everybody over there and uh, all the big wigs, you know, they talk about all the corruption and all the crazy stuff that could have been going on over there. 
What can you tell me um, legally <laughs> about what was going down at Pride? Well, you know, I, I got stabbed in the back by Pride. You know, I I did whatever they everything they wanted for years, and um, then at their last show, it, you know, uh, Stephen. Um, can't think of his name. Uh, who was the announcer at Pride? Um, oh, um, Stephen uh, Qu- Quadros. Stephen Quadros. Well, yeah, you know, he came to interview me for the last Pride. Then he said, hey, Sasha Barros is called and wants to know if you do him a favor and fight, you know, and then also uh, take a major cut in pay because it was, you know, they didn't have any money. And so I did that. And then. The next day, I go to get paid, and they're like, oh, Sacramento's on the phone. What? You know? I knew something was up. And then um, I go in there, and they give me the phone. He says, oh, Don-san, yesterday, Japanese IRS come to our office. They're looking for you. Matter of fact, they're downstairs right now. I go, fuck. So I go down there, and pay my way out of Japan, you know? So not only did I not get paid for that fight, you know, I did, I had to pay more money because, you know, they were supposed to pay the taxes for us. They never did. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I'm not happy with that fucker. And he's working uh, with Bellator now, you know? So, yeah. and that's, hell, you know, that's, I've never been invited to a Bellator event. I caught him one time over there in California and, you know, I says, Hey, where's my money? You know, <laughs> and I haven't been invited back since. You know? yeah, that, that's one thing that I, I never want to have to deal with in my life is Don Fry coming up to me asking for money. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't sound like a fun day at the office whatsoever. Bucky crawfish backwards and he, he threw every lie he had, you know, in his arsenal out there, you know? Well, this is an interesting thing to me, and, um, and I want to get your response on this. So, you know, Dana White in the UFC, it seems like, you know, that whole era that you were in, you know, in the early days of the UFC, and obviously you guys were pioneers and trailblazers, and it's amazing what you guys did, these one-night tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's like the ultimate uh, inc- incredible manly thing to do what you guys were doing. But what I'm getting at is it, do- it doesn't seem like – like, I know you're in the Hall of Fame and all these things, but it doesn't seem like he shows a whole lot of respect for that part uh, of the UFC. And it just doesn't really get talked about a whole lot. And, you know, I don't see you at UFC events and I don't see Dan at UFC events. And for whatever reason, does he just have issue with you guys or is there just some sort of disconnect between that era and, you know, the, the UFC now? Yeah, I... Um, I have no idea. Maybe, you know, he, he wants somebody to think that he invented the UFC, you know, and it didn't exist before he came along, you know. But, I mean, you know, he put me in the Hall of Fame, so I really can't badmouth him. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm No, and I totally understand that. And I'm not trying to put you in a difficult position. It's just – it just doesn't seem like it gets brought up enough because it, real fight fans, and I mean, I, I've only been, I've legitimately been watching since about, about 2004, but of course I've watched all the old stuff. 
that stuff amazes me. What you guys were doing with the one night tournaments and just fighting guys that were way bigger than you, the weight classes really were not involved whatsoever. That's what people really, really dig are those type of fights. And it just doesn't seem like it quite gets enough documentaries or enough of these specials and stuff like everything else is right now. Right. I mean, even in Pride, there was no weight class, you know? And, um, shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, it, it was, it was, like I said, it was a fight. It went from a fight to a sport to a TV show, you know? Yeah. And, um, it's just not the same at all, you know? I mean, fuck, they got women doing it. And they're doing it better than the guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Having some incredible fights. No, you're absolutely right about that. And um, and we've talked about that before in our other interviews. So we don't have to go back to that. But that was funny stuff. Um, anyways, uh, is there part of you being an old school guy and you know how rough it was back in the day and no weight classes where you look at this product and you're like, you know, what the hell is this? Or you, you just don't maybe think as much of what they're doing now as what you were doing back then. What's your view on it? <laughs> yeah. Pull no punches, Don yeah. Fry. <laughs> yeah, you, you're not trying to steer it your way, right? <laughs> no, no, no. I just, do you feel like it was just a tougher time? Do you feel like it was just a tougher sport back then? Do you look at it as if, if Don Fry was in today's UFC that, you know, you would smash these guys or you guys were that much tougher? What do you think? Yeah, we were tough. They're tough now too, though, you know. You can't take it away from them, but it's a different kind of tough. You know, back then, you fought to get the damn fight over with because, you know, you had another fight in 20 or 30 minutes if you won, you know. So you want to conserve some energy. And I screwed up once by not doing that, and it cost me, you know, the belt. And so, you know, you, you got to, there's a lot of strategy involved. Then generally, you, you didn't have tape on the guys, you know, and so you, you had to make sure that you were secure in your style of fighting and uh, that you also understood other styles. And it was a crapshoot. You didn't know what style they were going to come in with. Do you feel like there's any certain fighter from back in the day that really would transition over to the current UFC better than others? Because, I mean, it seems like back in the day, everybody had that one really good specialty that they had. Now, you had the boxing and the wrestling, which, you know, a lot of guys were just kind of not one-trick ponies, but they were centered around one discipline, you know, where Hoist Gracie just had the jiu-jitsu for the most part, and he had a little bit of striking, but not much, and and Dan had a lot of wrestling. You didn't have any <laughs> Come on. You didn't have uh, any strike. Yeah, that's what Plus I'm saying. Weight 175 pounds. Who the fuck is he going to hurt at 175 pounds when everybody's at least 25 pounds bigger than him? You know? You got to give it to him for that. He hung oh, yeah. in there. I mean, he hung in there uh, with chemo. He hung in there with Dan, you know? And, then, and he pulled it out of his ass. Yeah, you can't you know, you know uh, you'd like to badmouth him and say his worship, but he 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 had it, he did it, you know. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. So do you do you think that 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 athlete from back in the day that had that one awesome, really good discipline would transition into the current UFC well? Because it seems like the guys now 
are training everything right out of the gate. You know, when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, they're already working jujitsu, wrestling, striking, everything. Right. They, they understand the, the flow. You know, there's a flow from the standing to, to, the, to the ground, you know, and uh, there's a flow to get them to the ground. And then there's a flow to get your ass out of there, too. You know, so there's a lot, there's a lot to understand, but you know what people don't understand the guys back then, mostly all of them were national champions, multi-time national champions in their style or multi-time world champions in their style. They weren't somebody who just got off a bar stool, you know, and started fighting that. That was part of the hype. That was much of the bullshit. But no, everybody, everybody was pretty well versed in what their style was. And um, I think there was me and Marco Huas could have done it. I think Marco was a fantastic, you know, athlete and fighter. You know, strong, strong as a horse. You know, um, shit. Throw out a name. Who you think? You know. <laughs> No, no, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I know what you're saying, and you're right. I think it's those guys that do have those multiple disciplines. So, would you think that uh, Ken Shamrock would make that transition well? Well, Ken, Ken did for a while, you know, and then him and I fought, and like they say, neither one of us was the same since. We, we both left something in the ring that night, you know, and neither one of us were the same since then. Yeah, but you know, Ken, Ken did make he did make the change for a while. Was, was there? I'm going to switch gears here, and we'll talk wrestling for a minute. Um, we got a lot of wrestling fans that are going to be watching this. Um, with professional wrestling, you did a lot, and obviously did a ton in Japan. Was there anything that you regret not maybe doing more with not just WWE, but any of the other organizations? And was there opportunity to do so, and you just didn't take it? No, my opportunity was with New Japan Pro Wrestling, and um, and I was loyal to them. You know, I I wrestled for them the first two years on a handshake. You know, and um, then we did a um, then we did a contract, and then you know once they had me signed to a a contract for a year salary, they used the shit out of me. <laughs> oh yeah, for that is match for match, but. And then I screwed up. I wasn't smart enough to research and find out how the Japanese do business. You know, they, you know, um, Scott Frazzo had told me a story of this, that, how they do business. And it just didn't sink in. Um, a couple of other people would, you know, they wait until the last minute and then they'll present you an offer, you know, or they want to hear your offer. And, um, I was used to being a few months out and start negotiating the contract. So when they didn't do that, you know, I thought that they were going to be my walking papers. So I started contact, I contacted pride, you know? And, um, so I went to, went to pride cause I thought news man didn't want me, but, um, they didn't get a chance to present their offer. So I, I basically, you know, stabbed him in the back, you know, walked all over him. So, you know, it was my fault for not knowing how they, they do business. But I think new Japan pro wrestling was a great organization when I was there, 
and uh, then they, you know, it's like a roller coaster ride, and uh, every every wrestling company experiences it, and the whole the whole business experiences it. But after I left, it went down because and it's not because of me. It's just the timing of the era, and then now they're back up again. You know, so criminy. With, with wrestling, it's it's just so different uh, from fighting, and I've had a chance to work in both areas and. And just the way the promoters handle themselves and just the way the, the etiquette is and the things about wrestling, are, they're just so different uh, than fighting, in, in my estimation, anyways. Etiquette is the proper word, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what I wanted to ask you was, you know, and I asked Dan this as well um, when I talked to him, and did you really enjoy the whole process of wrestling or was it a thing where you knew you could make good money at it? Um, you know, you were good at it, or did you really enjoy those matches? And were there certain guys that you really just enjoyed working with? Uh, yeah, there's certain guys. I, I fucked it up because, um, you know, I, I didn't learn more, didn't learn enough. You know, I was real stiff, which you know nobody appreciated, you know, and because um, I was just so nervous because, you know, they taper out the match, and I have, I couldn't remember. You know, so I would be fucked up going, oh, man, what do I do next? So I couldn't relax and enjoy it, you know, because I was so worried about making the other guy make doing it right that I fucked it up from over worrying. And, uh, you know, I got to work with Ming. Ming was great, you know. Scott Norton was great. You know, um, geez, a couple other guys, they were just fun to, fun to be in the ring with, you know. You know, they, Scott Norton took care of me. He carried me every match we had. <laughs> That's a dude that is uh, extremely underrated, uh, just as a worker in general. Uh, just an absolute beast. Uh, he's a hell, of a hell of a wrestler. Ming, Ming, you, you know, you gotta keep your eyes open because you don't know he's there. He's so soft, you know. <laughs> he's such a good worker. But they say one of the toughest guys. I mean, it's all. It's always. Anytime you ever ask somebody, the toughest guy, okay. it always goes to Ming when you talk about professional wrestlers. How do you think if he would have just made up his mind and went into MMA, you think he would have done just as good as he did in wrestling or better? Done great. I think he done great, you know, because he just cocked strong, you know, and then uh, the, the Samoans are known for being so tough and having such a thick skull. You know, you can pound them on them, it doesn't affect them, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, he was a wild man. He, he was, you hear stories, I mean, he's scary. You know, I went over there, bit a guy's nose off. You know, he almost gouged out some guy's eyeballs. You know, crying, and he, who the hell wants to deal with something like that? Some guy came across the bar, and he looks like wrong, he comes over there, bites your fucking nose off. <laughs> Wait, listen, when you are surprising or, or freaking out Don Fry, that means that you, you're the real deal. <laughs> and he's the nicest, nicest, most caring guy in the world, too. You know, I mean, it's just one side of the fence or the other, I guess, you know. Uh, I'm going to do, let's do some real quick rapid fire name association. And I want you to give me a few words here if you can. Um, Fedor Emelianenko. Oh man, awesome! Just plain awesome, you know. And unfortunately, you know, like everybody, we stick around too long, you know. 
Okay. What about John and Jones? John Jones, that, that's another sad story. John Jones, amazing athlete, amazing fighter, but, you know, he's just, the demons are beating on him. I don't know, you know, um, you know, I fought him. You know, Jones is fighting him, but, uh, you know, sometimes he's losing more than he's winning. And that's just sad, you know, because he, he could have been could have been the greatest error ever. What about uh, Brock Lesnar? Brock, you know, he's an amazing athlete, you know, because he's up on top at the WWF for E for so long. And, you know, then he comes in to the UFC and, you know, and wins a the title there. I mean, he's an impressive athlete to be able to make that – I, I fucked it up doing both of them, man, you know, because I couldn't figure out when to be soft and when to be hard. You know? <laughs> I, I got it wrong. I got one more for you. Tank Abbott. Tank? Fuck Tank. You know, fuck him. I saw an interview with him saying uh, I cheated my way to the the ultimate ultimate, you know. Um, and he had fuck him. He, you know, he got Cal Worsham first round. Everybody knew Cal Worsham almost died back in May. You know, um, he had a punctured, he had a broken rib, punctured lung. You know, so there was no way he could have recovered in six or seven months. You know, and um, then then he had that uh, tank had that easy fucking glass jaw Joe. You know, in, in the uh, quarterfinals. Or semifinals, and then um, he's gonna blame me. He's gonna stir all this bullshit. So what you're, what he's seeing is, he blames his third divorce for the failure. Or he blame, yeah, he blames his third divorce, divorce on the failure of his first two divorces. You know, bullshit. You, you lost. I didn't kick your ass, but I won the fight. You know. He, I, I went down, got up. He went down, couldn't get up. Yep. Well, the, there it is. <laughs> there it is. I was hoping I'd get a good one out of you. I knew I was going to get a strong F-bomb if I hit you with the right name. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that we did that. Uh, Don, anything coming up here? I mean, I know I've, everything's kind of frozen right now, but acting-wise, any sort of appearances coming up that you know of or anything that's maybe in the works? Pardon, everything's frozen up, you know? Yeah. You know, for the last few years, the last decade, basically, you know, <laughs> I've been, you know, I had a bunch of doctors get addicted to, to cutting my back open, you know, for the, and, um, yeah, it's been a wild decade, but the last two years were pretty, really wild. And so I've been recovering, you know, and, um, I had an offer to do the, uh, Michael J. White Western and, uh, oh, yeah. but I, like I, there's no way I can get on a horse, you know, or I'd have to be leaning. I'd have to either sit at a poker table or leaning against the wall, you know? <laughs> no doubt, man. But I'm getting well, better. So if you're, if you're watching, uh, Mr. White, give me a call partner. I'm getting better. <laughs> you got that. I mean, ask for one more thing. Give, give a message to America and the American people that are scared right now and stressed out about the coronavirus, do you have a message for America from Don Fry? Yeah, well, 
you know, if they're scared, they're probably liberal Democrats, you know. So uh, get your head out of your ass. It's an invisible uh uh, virus, which isn't that tough. I think the death rate is 0.01%. You know, it's not that worrisome. Crime, you have a bigger chance of the flu or getting into a car wreck or falling out of an airplane without even ever getting on the fucking airplane. Crime, we're the United States of America. We're the toughest people ever walked this planet. Knock it off. Don, amazing. Thank you for giving me a few minutes. Uh, I, I needed that. I think I think the world needed a little Don Fry in their lives. So uh, I do appreciate it and, and have fun out there, out in the barn and horseshoeing and doing everything else you're doing. Welcome back to In This Corner with Cyrus Fees. And we already heard from the Predator. And as I promised you, uh, the colorful characters, we have plenty on this episode. So we're going to go to a guy that is a 15-year MMA veteran. He holds the record for most UFC tournaments, fought in two years at WCW, junior college All-American wrestler, author of The Bar Brawler. Uh, you've seen his podcast series, The Proving Ground with Tank Abbott. And if you're a Friends fan, you saw him in Friends. That's right, knocking out Pete, John Favreau. Yes, all you Friends fans out there, you're going to love that as well. We have Tank Abbott in the house. Tank, how you doing over there? I'm here, and hello to everybody, and how are you doing? You doing doing fantastic, man. Just uh, trying to make heads or tails of the situation. <laughs> I see you do – yes, I hear you. I see you do your uh, your research because most people have uh, things messed up, and but you're pretty spot on. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we like to do some really good research here and give you all the credit, and you've obviously, obviously done some amazing things. And um, first off, man, this coronavirus – it has flipped the world upside down. Uh, it's the reason why this show even came about, but we're glad that it has. But that being said, um, I know you've dealt with a lot of health issues recently, and this coronavirus must kind of stress you out a little extra right now. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it kind of not, not so much because I, I was in the hospital for like 30 days. Why the, why the quarantine was going down. The only thing I missed was my wife. She couldn't get in the hospital. I had no idea what was going on with the uh, quarantine and everything else. I was obviously dealing with my own issues. I had a, not literally, uh, but uh, figuratively, I had a blowtorch and a hacksaw going off on my organs. <laughs> and and uh, it was probably the worst pain that I've ever been through. Well, yeah, I mean, so uh, we, we talked about this before the interview, but not only did you have the liver transplant, but also a kidney transplant on top of that and maybe some complications with some of those anti-rejection drugs. And there's just a lot of uh, working parts going on right now and non-working parts for you. Um, kind of give us the Cliff Notes version of, of what you've been dealing with. Uh, well, the, the latest uh, thing that I've had to deal with is I first got my liver transplant at the beginning. I can't really remember how far ago. It was about a year ago. At any rate, I had complications, so died on the table. Uh, the great uh, surgical staff and the doctors up there saved my life, brought me back to life. And I uh, had a stroke, a series of strokes, like six or so. They call it a crown. Anyways, so that was a major 
come back. I had to fight through that. I didn't really remember much of that. I got my kidney done uh, after I was healthy enough to get another thing done. So the kidney hurt, but I can deal with the sharp pain and that kind of stuff. I dealt with that for three days. But the whole time since then, since the first surgery, I always was sluggish, tired. My strength wasn't good in the gym. I was trying to work out. It was like I was taking one step forward and two steps back. And then the pain with the uh, thing just kept on getting, got to the unbearable spot. Yeah. I had to go to the hospital and they didn't know what was wrong with me for 30 days, doing all sorts of tests and uh, blocks and everything else like that, nerve blocks. I'm like, they thought it was when the pancreas got uh, sewn back to the new liver that maybe something was trouble there. But it turned out to be uh, when I was in Japan 20 years ago, I must have contacted uh, roundworm, which uh, anyways comes from soil or whatever. And it's been laying at a dormant stage. But once I start taking anti-rejection medicine for my my new organs, they were able to flourish and come back and attack me, basically. And uh, they were were winning until uh, until they did the biopsy on me and found, uh, found it in my body. And it was two days of pills at the very beginning. And then, you know, it was like uh, over day, overnight, I was, the pain was gone. And it's been like I had to take 17 days where the pills, the infectious. Yeah. And the uh, infectious disease doctor, Dr. Bloom, with a N. And he... Uh, he told me that uh, basically had like uh, two days left. I was putting the pain off so much that they were they were that close to taking me. But uh, I guess I caught it at the right at the very last yeah. second. Yeah. Ever since then, every day I wake up and I feel better. And of course, all the gyms. You know, I work out at uh, Tiki Tiki's gym over there at HBUTC, and uh, but he's got to shut it down because of quarantine. and so um, i'm feeling great and uh actually said i might get out there and do some road work or something to get, get going but I'm, yeah I'm, and I'm feeling excellent well, well and i'm glad that uh the roundworms didn't take you and and man I, and i feel for you uh all these things that have happened just in the last three four years and and i and i want to i was going to go straight into the mma stuff but just as a human when they tell you that you died on the table, um, yeah. how do you wrap your mind around that? And how does that just overall change the way you see every day that you wake up? Well, uh, the stroke helped a lot because it took a long time for me to think about it. <laughs> or the, I should say the strokes. But yeah, man, it changes your life, definitely. It's a life-changing uh, experience. I guess I'm a nicer guy now. <laughs> I definitely have more empathy for people, and uh, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a life-changing experience, and it should be obviously. I yeah. Don't think it'd be otherwise, but yeah, things that used to bother you and stuff like that. Like I always needed to have things now, 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 and I needed this, this. I have patience now. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good for everybody around me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your career because it, it has been a a wild ride for you to say the least. Um, when, when we talk about mixed martial arts, which is primarily our focus here, uh, you hit the scene '95. Um, you applied to the UFC, if I got that right, and um, they decide to take you in. They talk about this backstory where you had 200 street fights, and uh, of course, they went with the name Tank, and they did some different things. Talk about that whole process where they kind of crafted something to kind of maybe build you up a little bit more, whereas I think you probably already had some pretty good street fighting credentials anyways, but at the same time, they wanted to really go over the top uh, and hit you with that backstory? Well, no, they stumbled into it. And, and I'll, I'll explain the background in a little bit, but just like most of the people that work behind the scenes, they stumble into a lot of things that they take credit for. But no, I definitely had been in over 200 street fights. You know, I've wrestled since I was nine years old, 10 years old. And um, I, at that time I was boxing, but before that, um, I always wanted to fight and I was, I was a punk rocker in, when I was a freshman in high school, which is not, not something you want to be when you weigh 130 pounds. <laughs> I was even, what's that McGregor size at that time. And, uh, but I would obviously have to stand up for myself against these uh, older people that had long hair and listened to heavy metal music. But um, I was down with that, and I always was getting in fights at intersections and then bars and then everything else. And, you know, I didn't always look like this. And I and so people uh, thought I was easy pickings, but they found out wrong. But... <laughs> Yeah, so there was a lot of fights, and, and I'm not talking knockdown, drag out fights. There's a lot of, you know, like high school parties when you're at the yeah. at parents' house, you know, and uh, someone's mouthing off, there's an altercation, you push them, you wrestle them down and beat on them for a few seconds and call that an altercation. So those fights happened, but um, so then. UFC, I was actually in jail for fighting. I was doing 180 days. And uh, the UFC had just begun to take off. I was working at a liquor store um, while I was going to college. And uh, I would look through the Playboys. I don't know why. <laughs> but they, they had average. I have an idea why. But yeah. Uh, being in college in the whole nine yards, even though I was. I was a late bloomer, but anyways, they had like advertisements in these things for the ultimate fighting. I go, wow, I wonder if this is real or not. And then, so, um, I, I lived in a house with two other guys and we had pirated cable. And so the UFC with, uh, the Samoan guy that got his teeth kicked out. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor Tui or yeah. 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 So I go, holy shit, this is real. I'm like, <laughs> finally, my prayers have been answered. You know, I was at the boxing gym and working out to be a, a boxer. And that's most, I've taken at least 10 wrestlers with me that used to think they had somewhat of a fighting thing. 
and you take them in there for one or two days and then they never come back and then never talk about fighting again. It was kind of like when Mike Tyson was on the top of the heap and yep. uh, there was a Mike Tyson fight and the boxing gym would be full of heavyweights the next Monday. By the end of the week, everybody was gone because they, they couldn't handle getting punched or anything like that. Of course. So well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I watched that thing. I remember with my dad, he's like, oh my God, this is made for you. And I'm like going, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Anyways, as the story to shorten it, anyways, I ended up getting in trouble driving home from that liquor store. This guy was having it out with his wife or his girlfriend, actually. And they were in an intersection. And then he he diverted his anger towards me. And then I had to stop the car and get out and ask him what his problem was. And he ended up punching me. And I ended up ending the, the fight and going to jail for 180 days just only because his dad was a, was a police officer in the, in the town I worked at. That's a pretty documented story. Anyway, so I go to jail. I, I get out on work release, um, you know, where you had, to, you had to go to a, a probation-like jail for the night, but you got out 12 hours to work during the day. So I was working with my friend, and his dad's company, and he goes, he goes, Dad, did you see this ultimate fighting thing? And I said, yes. He goes, oh, I got to get you into this. And I go, he goes, you'd actually fight now. I go, that's made for me, man. That's what I do. But I, I was in the boxing gym every day just going, God, why can't they have a thing of real fighting? I'd, I'd fight Mike Tyson right now and rip his head off in the street. <laughs> And I go, but it's uh, no one knows that they they think boxing is fighting. It's the furthest thing from it. And so that goes on. And he just picked up the phone and started calling Art Davy. And Art Davy uh, answered his calls and was like, going, "Oh wow!" And he goes, "We need he, this is a a martial arts show. You can't just have some guy come in off the street." And fight, and I we go. Well, no, he's like a all American wrestler. He's been in boxing. He's gonna go, you know. And he fights everywhere on the street. You walk around this town at Huntington Beach. Everybody knew I was actually, uh, amongst other things that had been stolen from me. I was the from the Huntington Beach bad boy. I was the true person that that yeah. was the Huntington Beach bad boy that got stolen. I, I don't give a rat's ass about it anymore. Well, no, see, now, <laughs> I would say now we got to veer into that because I actually had it on my list, you know, because, you know, he accompanied you to the ring, uh, I think a few times, right? I mean, and... So he was, he, he, he's, a, he's, a, you know, he's a con man and he knows how to, to do it, act like a con man. So he worked his way into my training camp which, mind you, there was no training for this, but there was an open wrestling room, and we just kind of semi-fought uh, Paul Herrera and Eddie Reese. And Paul Herrera was this high school coach, so he, I needed a bigger, taller guy to work with. And I said, yeah, I, I'll work with the kid. And uh, then um, 
he came along and he, yeah. he was working his angle. He, I just saw his thing on last night, ironically, came up on my phone and I, I've admitted to this. This is a guilty pleasure of mine. But watching uh, the Tito Ortiz uncaged thing. Okay. I only watch it because he's such an idiot and he took the. <laughs> it's just like hysterical. Who, who could mess up a show that you're producing? Anyways, he. Well, where, he where did it break down with you guys? I mean, was there was there a certain time or a certain uh, moment where it just broke down with you guys? Well, you know, I knew things are going on while I was with him. He's if you watch. Tito long enough, you'll know that he's a con man. And ironically, on the show last night, he, he was bragging about being a hustler and selling fish on the Newport Pier when he was a kid. And that's his background of being a con man and a scumbag. He, ha- he has it in his blood. It's it's something I've, I've dealt with these kind of people my whole life, try to help them out. And all they do is end up trying to rip you off and everything else and anyways so i went to bakersfield long story short i used to knock the living he started crying not emotionally crying crying from physical pain uh with me and um i would you know bring him along he ended up hustling the athletic director at at the junior college he was going to to help him to get into Bakersfield because he didn't have the grades and that go wonder. And uh, that goes down and um, he goes to Bakersfield. Well, at the time, Stephen Neal was the NCAA champ there and he, him and Brock Lesnar were going back and forth. Well, of course I want to wrestle with the NCAA heavyweight champion. Sure. So I go, hey, Tito, can you get me in your wrestling room? I want, I want to get up there and bang. And he goes, yeah, let me ask the coach. And the coach was all, you know, Coach Kerr, I guess his name is. They were all down for it. Yeah, it is, you know, as long as he's not punching people and stuff like that. So there I go. I got, like, Stephen Neal's an amazing athlete. And um, he's just, you know, we, we had some good scraps. I held my own, but. Man, the guy's an awesome wrestler. Yeah. Uh, so Tito kind of was working out there. I mean, Coach Kirk came up to me and said, hey, will you talk to your friend? I go, he's not my friend. He goes, you know, he's kind of a, a dirtbag. And I go, you're preaching to the choir. And he goes, you know, we go out on these hikes and stuff like that out in the mountains uh, to – you know, uh, when you don't eat very much, what's that called? Fasting. Uh, sure, and then, yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, hey, coach, can I borrow the keys to the van? I forgot my bag in there or something like that. And he goes, he's gone for half the day, and the the tire tracks and the, the mud or the dirt that was around the van. So he took the keys down and drove into town, and this is what the coach told me. I don't know this stuff for a fact is that he went to the to the place and had lunch and was hanging out, then pulled up back and then hiked back up to the thing. And they're like, where were you been? And he goes, oh, I was just down there. Fell asleep in the van. And he's like, can you talk to him? And I, <laughs> I go, well, I'll, I'll say something to him. So I, 
I said, hey, Tina, the coach here doesn't really dig your stuff that you're doing. Ends up, he's like, yeah, yeah. And then so another trip up, he's waiting outside for me and asked me if he could borrow $500. And I, I, I know the character of people like Tito. And I said, if I had it, I would give it to you. But I don't have it, bro. And he's like, oh, okay. Kind of make, trying to make me the bad guy. And I'm like, dude, I mean, like, when did I come in here to be your bank? You know what I mean? And yeah. so that goes down. And then uh, practice would end. And then I'd keep rolling in a barrel with, with, uh, with Stephen Neal and Paul Herrera was training with me at the time. And we would be up there banging and, after practice, 10 minutes or so, we get ready to leave and Tito's gone and everybody's gone. So we walk out and Tito's sitting in my truck. And I'm like, going, what the hell's that about? And I had this little mid-sized GMC truck and uh, walking up and, and I'm like, oh, why is he in my truck? What the hell's he doing? He's sitting on the passenger side. Well, don't think anything of it. Then the next day, two, three, don't think anything of it. I go wrestle or go fight. Hugo Duarte knocked the living daylights out of him, having a good time. You know, it was back in the days when the banks sent you checks. By the way, this is the first time I ever talked about this on air. Okay. Well, we got the scoop. Yes, you do. And I got more if many. So, yeah, so I come back with. I'm looking through my my checks in the envelope. You know, they it's back in the day when they returned them. And so I'm going through my checks. And there's a check written out to uh, Tito's brother that used to own a, an appliance shop. And it was made to his brother. And I had a business name for my checks. And where the signature was, was just scribbled out business, my business name. And it was, guess how much it was for? And guess what date it was? I'm guessing $500. And it was the day after. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like going, my God, that guy was in my chat or in my truck when we we walked out on him. And the, the, the thing is, is that, when I would be driving around and I go get money out of the ATM, this actually happened. And I, I should have known better, but I go through the drive through and I, I reach out the window and I'm trying to get ready to push the buttons. And something told me I, like I, I had sense about it. Turn around right now. And I turn around right now. Tito's leaning forward trying to get my bank number. Oh, God. Wow. And I look at him. I go, what are you doing? And he goes, ha, ha, ha. Uh-huh. laughing know. it off yeah just messing around <laughs> and I go yeah right and and so he used to he used to talk about I'll, I'll never or he goes I'm gonna, I want to fight in this UFC and I goes you're never going to fight in the UFC Tito it's not going to happen I go you're a midget or you're like 200 pounds and you're not very strong he's not a very strong guy I go, it'll never happen. You're going to get in there and fight 400-pounder like I did the first time? And he's like, oh. 
So five hundred dollars. Um, obviously, yeah. you know he, he's looking over your shoulder. He's looking at the bank numbers. So it sounds yeah. like just a pretty unsavory relationship uh, with Tito. Has there ever been any sort of you know trying to make amends or trying to bury the hatchet with the guy, or has he ever come reach out to you or like, anything like that? You know, like people like Tito and. Um, mind you, I've, I've, I've helped a lot of people, but they're, and they're usually nice about it and everything else and appreciate it. But like people like Tito, um, their, 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 their makeup of who they really are, you can't change that. And, and it's just a trait. And I just, I've been ripped off by a lot of people just because of the kindness in my heart. But um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, no, I I cut ties with all of that. And I just, whatever, I, I find it totally amusing that he can sell himself and people believe it. Um, but only because he's had fights handed to him and everything else that shouldn't have happened. They had to make a star. I think they did that on 30, 30, 30 for 30 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah they, they, they kind of touched on that. Um, kind of filled in the blanks on that about how Tito was just a whatever. And then Chuck was not really the guy that's going to get in front of the mirror or the, a camera with charisma. So, yeah, we all know where Tito stands, but well, yeah, you know, he definitely had a a part in that in that feud for sure. That him talking definitely made that more interesting, and definitely sold a lot of fights for sure. Yeah, in professional wrestling, you got your baby faces and your heels. <laughs> of course you do. Of course and, you do. And Chuck wasn't about to be a, a face. Well, Maybe we're uh, Eli by default, but he, you know, the the deal is is that Tito get out there and. Yap yap and try to, you know, Jesus. Everything he gets into is is, is just trying to swoon people into liking him. If you know, like I love children and little babies and animals. Who doesn't? That's crazy. <laughs> really? Oh God, can you shut up? And I'm <laughs> I, I'm enjoying because everybody's onto his show now. They realize exactly who he is. And I'm enjoying just watching him sit back and just, he's like scrambling. Like he's in the, he's going to be, he's going to move to the WWE. Well, trust me, it might happen. I'm very doubtful of it. I mean, with this. I'd be, I'd be surprised. They just, uh, they just legitimately released Cain Velasquez and, and Kane is, uh, in, uh, obviously in a better situation than Tito is at this point. And uh, even he couldn't keep his job, especially in this, this uh, climate right now. Uh, uh, well, yeah, this climate, but also you have to have, it's a whole different set of skills to be into professional wrestling. You have to have. Sure is. And we're going to uh, dig into that too. I want to talk a lot about that or at least touch on it a little bit. Um, well, let's, uh, we're not going to go too far here. We're going to take a little bit of a turn here because we're going to talk about a guy that uh, we actually interviewed on this episode uh, before we got to you and that's uh, Don Fry. And yeah. And we t talked a little bit, uh, Don and I did, and we did a little name association towards the end of the episode, and I brought your name up, and he had some unsavory things to say about you, and um, basically, uh, you know, F tank, and said that there was a situation, he said that maybe he was gifted to fights, and you thought that maybe he got an 
easy way uh, into one of the tournaments. I'm guessing the ultimate ultimate where you guys met in the finals. Um, what can you say about that? I guess it had been an interview that you had done. I just did, just did an interview with, uh, uh, I think it was Hannibal. He's a great guy, Devin. Yeah. Anyway, so I just touched on the point of, of Don Fry. He did, he, he did a, a interview. He was in the hospital bed and he was talking some gibberish about me that I don't care. It's part of the game, whatever. Their job to think we're tough guys, but, but anyways, so, I mean, you want to talk about Don Fry, and I, my point was very simply is that, and the ultimate, ultimate, he fought his friend. I mean, and if you're going to fight your friend, I mean, you don't have no integrity. You have, if Paul Herrera, say for a, a second, a guy I trained with for a long time, we actually started together. And I talked to him last night on the phone, so we've had a long relationship. Yeah. But um, if I was to fight him, I, I, this is no way in the world. But Don Fry, they, they, back in the day, they used to set up all these tournaments. All, it wasn't all about just to get some. They didn't even have belts at the time. But it was always to beat me because I was the, the purveyor of truth and I would tell you what's really up. Like, these guys aren't really fighters. They might have wrestled. They might have boxed. They might have did jujitsu. But they're not fighters. Hoyce has a fighting spirit. But one through five was a uh, Gracie jujitsu commercial. It wasn't really fighting. They got to pick who they fight. And so when Don Fry's spouting off like saying, oh, you know, he had Jesse Reed in the corner. He boxed. Well, hell yeah, I boxed. And yeah, I've wrestled. I can go takedowns with anybody in the world. I've trained with world-class people for a long time. And uh, so I just pointed out the obvious, that they set up this whole tournament. I was not supposed to win. It was me against the whole tournament, all the way from Big John, the referee, to yeah. all Behind the scenes, they all wanted to take me down because I was an accident that slid by him because I was the real guy that goes back to the tank thing before we digressed on that. I was the real – I went to UFC 5 before I fought – or UFC 5 before I fought UFC 6. It was like a circus. All these all these guys walking around telling everybody that they're martial artists. Like, you're supposed to be impressed. Like – if Bruce Lee or anybody else came up to me and said, I'm a martial artist and I could rip your heart out and stick it in your mouth before you did with my bare hands, they'd be sleeping on the street with their job. <laughs> Dude, I, how, I have no doubt. And that's how the, all those, there was a whole, uh, it was a charade. It was like, oh my God, these guys are all clowns. So yeah. I, I went across the street and partied with all the locals, got drunk, and went to the show. And this is after Art Davies said I would be in after UFC 5 because the Gracies, I have a, have a strong feeling, did not want anything to do with me. And so, because they did their little research and they found out who the real-life Tank Abbott was on the Huntington Beach Bad Boy that kicked everybody's ass in Orange County and everybody's ass in, in Huntington Beach. 
before there was the ultimate fighting. They found out about who I really was and they, they freaked out. Art Davey ends up giving my tickets away that I, I was supposed to be down on the floor so I could watch the show. And so it wouldn't be new to me. I wanted to be behind the scenes and everything. Sure. Well, Art Davey, he's a, he, the guy's wearing a tuxedo. You might, he might as well have been Don King of, you know, of the, the scene. As a character. Yeah, yeah. He's walking around like a twerp. He has like his phony Vietnam uh, uh, hat on, like a combat hat. Like that guy would start crying if he saw a bullet. Anyways, um, so he's just a, end up giving my tickets to some girl that he was trying to woo at the at the hotel. So I'm sitting up in the nosebleeds and I see him walking around. I yell over to him. I go, hey, what the hell? I got a sponsor that sent me out here. They said they might show a clip of me or something on, on TV walking by the cage. And I go, you have me sitting up here in the nosebleeds. And he, he got offended and got walked off, shrugged his shoulders. Next thing I know, I come back and they say, oh, that guy's too fucking crazy. He's not going to be on our show. Okay. Twist and turns come around. I, they needed somebody at two weeks out. And so I got into the show and they go, we need to come up with a name for him. And so they came up with Tank from Street Fighter. Are the street fighter from any which way but loose is street fighting legend that uh, Philo, whatever his name is. Yeah, is, yeah, I saw a little bit of that backstory. That's uh, and that, so that's wild. So I was a street fighting legend, and that's how they started it. And then the whole clan of martial art bozos that run around and sell their martial arts grab ass to each other are like going, oh my God. And so what do we have? I have a Samoan bone breaker and we're sitting in this, this room, of, I don't know, cafe kind of thing that they turned into like a banquet room. And so yeah. they, they had this basket like bingo and they, had, they gave everybody a number. And they rolled this basket around and around and then I supposed to stick, okay, number one, go grab a, a number out of the, the basket. And so I pulled out a number and, and read the number and they roll it around and it was the Samoan. So the, yeah. whole, the whole place drops into a huge gasp. The bone breaker is going to fight the street fighter clown that I was. Yeah. And, oh, this is going to be great. And the whole, you could hear a pin drop, except for my table is a big round table. They find out I'm finding the Samoan bone breaker and my whole table jumps up and cheers. Yeah. Amongst juxtaposed in the, in the rest of the room, a martial artist and it's all quiet. Like, Oh my God, this poor street fighter is going to get hurt so bad. <laughs> and a little did they know we saw what happened in Matua, but yeah. so, but they were all like, what the hell's, this table cheering for it. They should be going, oh, my God. So all the martial arts clowns that are there that want to be fighting, they're going to do the fucking claw by the Keith Hackney. Remember Keith Hackney? Yeah. 
that guy's a tough son of a bitch. I watched some, some tapes because I used to make fun of him. His claw. Trust me, I don't think the technique works. But as a person, like a fighter, that guy's got some heart. He's tough, man. And like Mike Tyson, he's a great boxer, but he's more of a fighter. And he brought the fight back to boxing. And so I'm just saying Keith Hackney with the claw. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome, by the way. I love it. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Well, and, but I watched the tape on him because I, I would say stuff about the claw. And it's true. He's a tough guy. And back before I digress. So we had all these people that had their own special version of the claw. I was going to get the Simone, Simone bone breaking. They were going to break all my bones. The only, the only thing that came close to is the hands of uh, the bones in my hands. <laughs> anyways, so the whole deal was, is that, uh, that happens. And, um, obviously we go into this fighters meeting and some people brought their seconds in there. I went to bear myself and I brought my gloves that I went and made myself. I went to the, the store, the, the, um, sports store and i found some bad gloves and i had like a bar which i thought was a steel bar but i cut it open the leather off of it and it was just like a plastic tube and i took that out of there and i got these things are perfect i can wrestle on them and i can still punch my my hands used to look like i have so many scars on my hands and they, they used to make a railroad tracks all of them but so i brought the gloves in and i said can i wear these and Big John McCarthy and his cop uh, saying, he goes, well, if you want to wear them, you can wear them. <laughs> and the whole, room, the whole room starts laughing. And I go, I'm thinking to myself, you just wait. You just wait. Wait till tomorrow, man. It's Tomorrow's going to be a great day. Yeah. And so the first fight of the night was me and the bone breaker. And I, I had my plaster of Paris or whatever it's called ready in a bucket because he's going to break all my bones <laughs> they were going to fly him right there in the, in the octagon and I had my gloves and I stretched that son of a bitch out like I used to do that every weekend Yeah, and I stretched that mother out and everybody was all shocked and I was like whoa where's a cocktail you know where's my beer <laughs> but uh, that goes down and so then overnight on Tank Abbott, the stupidest name I would ever come up for myself. <laughs> with it, I disagree, man. It's it's a name that resonates. It is a name that even when I was not a fan of the sport and I was more of a wrestling fan, um, I'd always see your name floating around just in the rumor mill. Admittedly, I didn't really start watching the sport till about '05, um, but I always knew about you. So it definitely yeah. resonated. So, I mean, <laughs> right, wrong, or indifferent, it was a good name, I think. Well, yeah, it stuck with me, so I, I can't say it. I, I'm not going to say I, – I guess I can say this. I stole that from, <laughs> I stole that from Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Our, our, our Davies stole it from Clint Eastwood. <laughs> but, you well, know, well, let's – uh, friends, uh, friends of Clint Eastwood, and um, he has told me that Tank Murdoch – the guy that they named me after was a real life character. And it'd be awesome if I 
could get to meet him or take a picture with him if he's still alive. Yeah, I saw I saw on your social media a while back that you were hanging out with Clint Eastwood, which is pretty amazing. Um, very very cool, and uh, and I'm sure if we get a if we ever get a part two of this, uh, we'll dig into that even as well. I, I do want to touch on your WCW stuff though because. Me personally, that that's where I first really, you know, saw what you were doing, uh, to be honest with you, because I was a huge wrestling fan. I still am. Uh, that being said, talk me real quick, just through the process to how you getting signed by WCW. And I know Vince Russo was a big, uh, uh, was a big fan of yours and had some big plans for you. Uh, kind of talk about that a little bit. Well, that I'll, I'll set you straight with Vince Russo, but uh, he's a great guy. But no, he had nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, uh, what went down was uh, uh, the, the UFC was getting a lot of pressure from John McCain and Bob Meyerowitz, the original owner of Semaphore Entertainment, was hurting because they they were like going, well, I don't know if we can put this on pay-per-view. This is, this is almost like porno or something. You know, it's human cockfighting. And so there was less people to cable distributors didn't want to pick it up and so i'm sitting around like okay what am i going to do and so i uh i went and talked to wwe which was wwf at the time and in lieu of that i i had a friend that owned a motorcycle shop and um i was in there and guy asked me if I knew who Eric Bischoff was. He was the customer kind of slash friend. Yeah. And I said, no, I'd like to know Eric, but I don't know him. And he said, well, I fly with him all the time. I'll, I'll put your name and give you your phone number. And so didn't think much of it. And then once I was going to WWE or F at the time, I was sitting at home and it was back before cell phones. And I picked up the phone, and he's like, hey, is this Tank Abbott? And I go, yeah, it depends. He's like, <laughs> he, goes, this he goes, this is Eric Bischoff. And I go, hey, Eric. And uh, he kind of he's uh, he kind of hit it off. Like, we have the same kind of vibe kind of thing. And he goes, I hear you're going up north, which was the term they used at the time. For to go to WWE. Yeah, up in Stanford, Connecticut. And I said, yeah, leave him Friday to meet with them. Or it was a Friday or Saturday strokes. So it doesn't sure. matter. Anyways, so I end up going up there. He goes, do me a favor. Go up there. If you're in the big buildings and glamour and all that, have at it. And I, I go, no, I'll check it out. And he goes, just don't sign anything, and then I'll fly you out on Monday. And I said, okay. Anyways, I go up there, meet people, did all the stuff. Everything was great, and I, I made no commitment to anybody. And then I came home, and Eric had a car pick me up at the house, flew me there, had a nice conversation with him, and I was all Eric Bischoff. And... Uh, Trust me, I've got a very, very strong warrior uh, thing. I, I have uh, I live by strict code of honesty and being yeah. everything else. So me and Eric hit it off on that level. You know, if you watch those shows 
there's so many politics that was going on in WCW at the time. And I just, Eric, I just took care every person that I dealt with from Ric Flair to Hulk Hogan. I just kept it to how I met them and how they treated me. Sure. Everybody, was, everybody, I can't say anything bad about anybody in that business. Well, what about, let me ask you about the WWE thing. Cause I wasn't absolutely, I didn't know about that aspect that you were heading up there. Um, now that was after Shamrock and Severn had already been there, I'm assuming, right? So they had yes. already been there at that time. So did they have any sort of plans for you? Did they even did they come to you and say, Hey, we'd like to see you do this in the WWF? Anything like no, that? No, the only thing that they were kind of rubbing their hands together with and it's not like a big deal, is is that they're like, Oh my god, oh my god, this is so great. And I'm like talking to him in the office and I go, and I go, yeah. And he goes, Oh my God, can you just picture like a, a, a huge match with him and stone cold? I don't know if they're jacking yeah. me up or trying to get, get over on me or whatever. Yeah. But I'm like, I go, yeah, I could, I could do a match. I think we could really burn the house down. And they're like, oh yeah, 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 but yeah, they, they weren't showing their cards, and I understand the thing. Of it yeah, that definitely now. could. Uh, that sounds very much like they were uh, maybe <laughs> just trying to get you a little excited at the time, and yeah, set yeah. up a Stone Cold match. <laughs> they also said other things the other way. Yeah, and I, I, I was part of their jaw dropping, and when I walked out of the door. And I said, well, I'll, I'll consider all this. And I, I said, you know, I'm talking to Eric Bischoff. And I didn't say Bischoff, but I said, you know, I'm talking to Eric, didn't, don't you? And I just at that time said, well, I, I know what's going on. And so I told Eric that I'd talk to him and, and I didn't sign anything. And, and me and Eric hit it off. And I'm sure... In the business, you probably think he was working to make me think he was friends, but we're friends to this day. And and uh, he was always cool. Everything he ever said that he would do or anything like that happened. Well, you know. spe- well, speaking of that, because now, now that is part of the story that I think I have, right? And, and I know you'll definitely set me straight otherwise, but they had talked about bringing you in uh, as an opponent for Goldberg and, and making a Goldberg thing happen, that didn't quite materialize. And then I've also heard a little bit, uh, did a little bit of reading here that perhaps you were supposed to hold the world championship at one point, and then that did not materialize as well. Um, and then, you know, it's the, the match is on my Instagram of me and Sid. Yeah. I was supposed to win that match, but. Politics and Russo and everything else that involved, and like like I said, I wasn't there to make waves. I wasn't going to come in there and say, "Hey, woo-hoo. put both sure. my fingers put both my fingers in the air and say, this is what's going to happen." You know, Eric lost control or walked away from control of the WCW, and um, I was kind of more of Eric's plan. I don't know what he had planned rumors and i will say rumors were that i was supposed to take care of 
get over on Goldberg. Yeah. And that didn't happen, obviously. Um, I wrestled him in Atlanta when after he hurt his arm. And uh, that kind of just, it kind of fell flat. Everything after I, after Eric left, kind of went south. Sure. And I was, I was just there to ride the ride. And, you know, if something came, popped up, I would, I would go into it. But. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that because, and the reason why I brought up the Russo thing early on is because that's kind of the narrative that I'm seeing out there uh, after I've done a little research is that basically what you're saying about Bischoff is what they're saying about Russo. That Russo was the one that wanted you to win the championship. And then when Russo left, that's when things kind of fell apart. And then, you know, you did the thing with three count, you did some other stuff. So that's kind of the narratives that's out there. So you're saying it's the other way around, that it's really Bischoff that, that really had these plans for you, and they fizzled once he left. I, I, I'm not going to speak for Russo and his sure. plan, but I know they were going to have a battle royale, and I was supposed to win it. Okay. That was a huge scene with uh, four – four guys said what this guy's going to come in here and become champion feel free to tell me who those guys are (laughs) it's on the the internet it's uh harry saturn chris benoit uh honan okay and that level wrestler and um somebody else obviously i can't remember their name so that tells you how important they were they all went up north to uh, Malenko, uh, Malenko, Guerrero, I'm guessing. One of those guys, right? It was Malenko. But so they all, because they were going to make me champion, I didn't have a pedigree, and I just came into the business, which would have got over if it would have been done right. But that's not my job. And Of the, course. And that wasn't their thing. And that was Russo's idea after Eric left and then then Sid and and that happened because of the Benoit thing and so then they put me in with Sid and I was supposed to win till the day I got there and I was in in uh, in uh, Minneapolis yeah Vern Ganya country I guess um, indeed yes and so I uh, was supposed to win till maybe three hours before the show. And they said, hey, we have a change. And I'm like, what, what, what? And I said, uh, Sid's going to win. Uh, I did shrug my shoulders, put my hands up, said, yeah, that's all right with me. Well, that's interesting. I mean, is that basically how you kind of took things with wrestling? Like, was there ever a point where – it really kind of pissed you off a little bit that they were swerve that they were kind of swerving things, or was it just all business? It was all business. Yeah, definitely. I like the term that you use there. It was all business. I didn't have emotional things like, oh man, I could have been heavyweight champion of the world, and oh, it was that close, and it got ripped out of my hands. Yeah, I wasn't emotionally uh, in 
affected that way. I was more like a business thing, like, hey, I'm the new guy. These guys are my bosses, and uh, I'll, I'll do what you say. I'm a company man. I'm like hardcore, like I said, into loyalty and and honesty and yeah yeah, yeah I, integrity and a whole nine yards that means your word means more than anything in my life well let me you know i i just i saw the stuff with uh i mean the thing i i most most remember about your run even as a kid when i was watching was obviously the three count stuff and it was just because it was so bizarre um that it was entertaining you know and and i just recently i i was perusing the network during this great quarantine that we're in and uh and I love to watch that era of WCW because I think it was just so off the wall and entertaining and they were trying so many different things and it was just fun to watch and I happened upon a segment I think it was from Thunder maybe where you were just dancing your ass off <laughs> with the three count song and just having a blast and it looked like you were legitimately having so much fun I don't think you could fake it because it looked like you were having a blast you know what that was? I, I don't quote me on this because I, I get things jumbled up and messed up a lot because of what I've gone through. But I think it was a pay-per-view in British Columbia. And so for the people that don't understand, you have to be at the arena by noon or one or two, and you go on the back. Well, Canadian has crazy wrestling fans. I found... Canada. Canada, Canadian, whatever. <laughs> Sally with the save. Nice job, Sally. I'm well, like, what? I, I, I have, I've, I use my line as I've had, a, I've had strokes. And <laughs> of course. If, you if always you were, got that in your back pocket. <laughs> if, if you were in my shoes, you wouldn't be able to talk. But so I've thought through the stuff about my, my stick. So I go there and um, I don't know. I was it was a crazy time. Anyways, so I'm there and I pull up into the uh, arena, but they, it was one of those places where you have everybody shares parking lots with different kind of things. Yeah. Like you have a basketball arena and a hockey arena or whatever. Well, they happened to have a horse track right across from the arena that I was in, in the back. So I walk in to see what I'm going to do, and I say, "You're not doing anything today. You're just going to go out." introduce three count and dance and stuff and so it's like noon and it doesn't come on to like five or sometime whatever and i'm sitting there and i'm going the back to say hi to the fans because um, they're all standing out there and they're just you know just want to see somebody sure and so I walk out on the loading deck there, and I'm like, hey, man, what's going on, man? What the hell is that? You know, everybody's getting into the whole party, basically. Of course. And then I go, I hear in the background, he's coming up on the outside, four lengths up. I'm like, what the hell is that? And everybody goes, that's the horse track. I said, hell, let's go. <laughs> I, walk across the, I walk across the parking lot with 50-plus fans, end up going into the horses and, and uh, sitting in the little thing with this probably like 50 seats in the box type thing. Yeah. So being that I didn't have a liver problem at the time, I decided, <laughs> I decided to have a cocktail. Of course. And I have five hours to kill. And so five hours went by and I came back 
next thing I know, they give me a three count shirt. And if you look hard enough, I cut the nipples out. There are three green circles <laughs> on the front. <laughs> cut the nipples out of that. And it's a pay-per-view, so you can't go wrong. Anyway, so, so anyways, that's the dancing part. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, might have contributed to me being so happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it it really it it did look like you were having a good time out there, and I, I gotta wonder, you know, I mean, you got released. I think it was 2000 when you got released, and um, why did why did you never really stick with wrestling? Because I, I think that. There were a lot of fans that really liked what you were doing. Uh, I think some more serious stuff would have been really cool to see you do because they kind of veered into the comedy. Um, right. did, were you, did you just not really have uh, an itch to do it? Or where you said it was all business? Or, right. or why, why did you never pursue it any further? Vince bought the show or WWFE, whatever. Um, I was kind of like, um, I'm kind of like a recluse anyways. Like this this quarantine stuff doesn't bother me at all. If I'm, if I could drink, I would be in a bar or I would be in a bar with headphones on. So I'm not talking. Yeah, of course. Until I wanted to, until yeah. I had the cocktails that I wanted to talk to somebody. But, um, so this quarantine thing, it's not a big deal. So after it was done, it was a pressure maybe that I didn't realize that I was under that. I mean, it was all gone. I was a fun of hog. So I just got lost in a bottle trying to hide myself. Yeah. Nothing, nothing like diagnosable, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Nothing emotional. Just uh, I was to myself and uh, people ask me like, oh, you're an alcoholic? I go, no, I'm more of a fun and I could put alcohol down anytime I wanted to. It never controlled me. But um, so I, I used to like to have a lot of fun. I still do, but um, that was my thing. I was just into myself and I wasn't into anything. And yeah. I was a little naive. Um, you know, like I not ever tried to sell myself on anything, but those guys I thought maybe would call me up or something. And I said, oh, if they call me, I'll, I'll talk to them. But they never called. I don't know. Yeah. They must have felt that I didn't want, I want to be there or I didn't fit into the scheme. But like you said, I could have had some, some good matches with Angle. and, and uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, when I tried out with the WWE, Angle was there trying, trying out with me for, the, for that thing at the – we, I wanted to go takedowns with them so bad, but uh, I never asked him. I thought it would be out of place. But at the training center, we were there at the same yeah. time. Do you think he would have been any good uh, in mixed martial arts had he decided to go through that? I mean, dude was just he's an incredible got, athlete. He's got the strong wrestling background, but, you know, it just met. It, like, uh, I trained with Mark Schultz for like five weeks up in Utah and BYU. And Mark, um, I just don't think he had it in him. I mean, he has a crazy high crotch and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but he, I don't know. He's he definitely crazy. Mark, Mark's a crazy guy, but uh, in a fun way. And, um, but I just, 
I never saw that killer instinct in him, but he had he's kind of more of a quiet introvert kind of guy, so maybe he has it in him. I don't I don't know how Kurt Kurt strikes me as Mark Schultz. I I kind of I see where you're going with that, and very I tough. Just, it's very tough guys, but it's like you can't make that transition. It's hard, hard. Like I, when I wrestled, like all I wanted to do was hurt my opponent. I don't care how I did it. I'd bite you in the back or do whatever. I was kind of dirty, but I was a youngster then, so I can. Well, you talked about you know wrestlers that you know that would say they want to do it and they didn't last very long. So. So I could see where you'd put that correlation in there. And it's, it's always one of those what ifs is if Angle would have tried that. And he always talks about it, you know. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd be an animal, man. The guy used to be an awesome wrestler. Sure. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think really you can be successful without a strong wrestling background. You know, everybody, you get caught with submission holds, true. But um, that's like getting caught on the chin with a, a freak shot. Yeah. Um, if you get caught in a, an arm bar or a choke, it happens. But it does. if you know how to defend yourself, it's hard to happen. Well, the, the one thing, the one more, the one thing that I want to kind of close out with is, um, you know, I talked about when I introduced you that, you know, you have that record of fighting in the most tournaments and you were very, very much, you know, one of those names that resonates when people talk about, you know, the early run of the UFC. Um, like I told you, when I wasn't a fan and I wasn't following it at all, I always knew the name Tank Abbott. That being said, you know, we've seen Shamrock go into the UFC Hall of Fame and, and Severn go into the UFC Hall of Fame and Don Fry go into the UFC Hall of Fame. Do you feel like that will ever happen? And does that bother you either which way? Well, you know what? I would I would like to be in the Hall of Fame. I was a little young, young and and wild before my surgery, but that goes with many years of drinking sauce. It, it affects you and your brain and everything else. But that's no excuse. But yeah, I'd like to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know why they don't do it. I mean, it's fairly obvious that I should be. Sure. But, but yeah, like. You know, so any sort of relationship with Dana at all with Dana White? Well, you know, it's funny. I I, I have talked with him before, and everything was relatively cool. And, and if you take things, I, I Dana's a cool. Me and him were cool at the time, but I was in a death of cirrhosis. Yeah, and, and you don't. You, it's a you don't think rationally. So I didn't really talk with him about anything. I went back and did his three fights. Every one of those fights I did, I'm a sicker than a dog. I yeah. went back, I went back to do a TV thing for him. And I, I let him down. Not, he doesn't get probably give a rat's ass, but I, as a warrior and as a person, I was supposed to be somewhere and I didn't make it because I was so sick. Yeah. And he's like, where did, where were you? And I'm like, I, I was sick, and I just got up. I didn't tell him that I was sick. I told him I overslept. Sure. Anyway, um, then my last fight I fought, I, I fought on Indian Reservation. I was in bed five minutes before they, they came and knocked on my door, and they said, you're up. I told them to come get me five minutes before the fight. I got out of bed, tied my shoes, walked down, 
got in fought the uh, I can't even think of his Warpath. name Warpath and it was yeah. it was it was a surreal situation I was like in a movie like like a camera in a movie maybe it was like a, one of these video games but I just went <laughs> I'm like whoa these punches are going by my face and I took him down and I just ran out of gas because I couldn't do anything I was so sick and that was my last fight but back to the UFC and, and the Hall of Fame sure I'd absolutely love to be in there uh, well I know there's a lot of fans that would that would love to see you in there including myself and um you know, Tank, uh, you, you've had such a, a wild uh, life of ups and downs and almost like a roller coaster. And the more that I talk to you, then I, then I hear even more of that. And uh, you have the book out there, the Bar Brawler book. Um, I think there's so much more that you can even add to that. Uh, and if there ever should be a, a solid movie made about somebody, I think uh, you'd be a great candidate for that. Well, I can't argue with that, but... Uh... <laughs> words but uh yeah no that book is the first book of a trilogy or actually it is a trilogy it's the first book of the of the thing it's called before there were rules bar brawler is the first book and soon very soon is the second book which is uh street warrior okay and that's coming out very soon it's out of my hands i try to get it done but we're getting down to the down to the final edit and uh, other than that uh, yeah that book it is it is a movie all three books together it goes from where bar brawler starts to me fighting in the first ufc six but it is not me it's about a fictional character named walter fox okay um it's his his travels and what he does and it's it's definitely a it's definitely a movie, but well, cool. um, but I didn't I didn't write it to be a movie. I just wrote it actually sitting at a bar, <laughs> over a thousand page novel in a bar. And and we and it and it comes full circle, my friend. Well, uh, Tank, uh, I want you to absolutely stay healthy out there and stay safe. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation and. Uh, I'm sure we could probably do a part two down the road and, and delve even deeper into some of these things. And I know you have a lot to talk about and uh, there's a lot more that we haven't even scratched the surface on. Um, so I just want to thank you for doing this interview. It's, uh, it's been my pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure too. Yeah. I'll, we'll rev it up for uh, next time. All right. And there it is. Tank Abbott and Don Fry on in this corner, uh, Tank Abbott dropping some bombs there on Tito Ortiz. Uh, don't know how much truth is to it, but you know, in in my experience, if you almost die or you do die on the operating table, and you know, how much do you have to lie about, right? Like you gotta imagine that he's telling the truth, right? You would think. So I would love to talk to Tito about this and just have a conversation with Tito. What an icon. So, Tito, if you're hearing this, please reach out to me. Let's make this thing happen. Um, or if anybody on social media wants to reach out to Tito, make sure that you do. I would love to hear his input. Obviously, Tito doing big things in the political space out there in Huntington Beach. So with that being said, I mean, what's on the calendar here? What is going to be next? Well, folks, we got 
some fun stuff. So obviously we are dropping these episodes every Thursday on adfreeshows.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And we are going to have two incredible personalities here. And it's hard to follow up Tank Abbott and Don Fry, but we're just going to fast forward a few years, kind of go into a new generation of MMA. And we are going to talk to Jason Mayhem Miller. Yeah, Mayhem on the podcast. And check this one out. Felony Charles Bennett. And if felony is not ringing a bell, just think back to pride and think of the man they called Crazy Horse. That's right. Crazy Horse, Felony, Charles Bennett. I know he's going to get mad when he hears this. He doesn't like to be called Crazy Horse. That being said, we got that interview in and uh, I definitely uh, respected his wishes when it came to that. And uh, I have a great story that I'll tell you about that interview when we get to that episode. We are also going to have a little bit of bonus content as well. So next Tuesday, we are going to drop a little bonus episode. It's a couple of guys that are not directly in fighting, but are huge fans and have their own personalities. And I mean, it's really out of left field here. We got Pat the NES Punk. If you've ever been on YouTube and you like old school video games, you've probably seen some of Pat's videos. One of the most watched YouTubers when it comes to NES games and old school games. He's also the host of the uh, completely unnecessary podcast with Ian Ferguson, one of my favorite podcasts. So I wanted to get him on here to talk MMA, which we do, uh, and I hope you appreciate that. And check this out: paired up with Pat the NES Punk is the Jet Ski King. That's right, the Jet Ski guy from the Tiger King, James Garretson. You know the one that they call the real life Chucky doll. I think that's what Joe Exotic calls him. James Garretson. They call him the biggest snitch. He actually does the interview from a strip club. It's bananas. So Pat the NES Punk. James Garrett's and the Jet Ski King. That's going to be your bonus content coming next Tuesday, then next Thursday, Mayhem Miller and Felony Charles Bennett. Yes, we keep hitting you with the good stuff. Keep subscribing, keep reviewing, showing us all kinds of love. We definitely appreciate it. It's In This Corner MMA on all your social media platforms. And you can find me at Cyrus the Show. Follow me, reach out to me, and tell me who you want to have here on In This Corner. For everybody involved, for my awesome producer, Nick Rogers, for Dean Land, for hooking up some great interviews, I'm Cyrus Fees. We'll see you next time right here on In This Corner.